Hi, my name is Fiona Zeiger and you're listening to The Migration Podcast. It took us a little longer than usual, but now we are back with our third season. And to kickstart our new series of episodes, we invited Stephen Bertovec to speak about ways of studying and understanding social complexity as one of the consequences of migration. Our guest today is someone whose name is hard to miss in migration research. Steven Wertebeck is the founding director at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Religious and Ethnic Diversity. His list of publications is so extensive, it could be an essay in its own right, and bears witness to work that spans from inquiries into the role of religion and ethnicity in post-colonial contexts to the study of diasporas, transnationalism, multiculturalism, cosmopolitanism, migration processes, and super diversity. Welcome to the Migration Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I feel honored. <laughs> Steve, can you tell us a little bit about how you developed your initial interest in the study of religion and how your intellectual project evolved since then? Okay, That's big picture stuff. Um, I would say it goes back to when I was an undergraduate, and uh, I was uh, an undergraduate at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I did what's what's called there a, a double major. I, I studied both anthropology and religious studies, and what I came to specialize in there, and then when I went on and, and did a, a master's degree at the uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, was mainly about Native Americans, indigenous peoples of the Americas. And I was fascinated with, in anthropology, there's a concept of worldviews. It's basically how, how people conceive of the reality around them, the, 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 the visible world, the invisible world, the cosmos, how it all fits together, how things work. And uh, so I was really fascinated with this idea of worldviews. And as I say, I specialized in Native American traditions. But particularly, as I developed my studies, I became more and more fascinated by what happened to these worldviews after contact with Europeans and completely different worldviews. It's like people coming from outer space. I, I especially worked with... Uh, a fantastic scholar, uh, he's now at Harvard, uh, David Carrasco, uh, and we worked on, on Aztec uh, materials. And so when Cortez and the Spanish first met the Aztecs, this coming together of two universes of, of, of meaning and outlook, I was really fascinated. And so this, this set up for me a whole idea of, of encounter and difference and what happens and how people negotiate difference conceptually, relationally, power, how that comes into it, et cetera, et cetera. It just opens up a whole line of inquiry into what happens when people marked by difference of religion, ethnicity, uh, worldviews uh, come together. So I would say that that started me down this, this path. Yeah. You're also very well known for the concept of super diversity. So from, from the very start to this concept of super diversity, what was your... What was your pathway there? Okay, you're talking about a pathway that is about 35 years long. Since yes, the, if you if we could jog through it. <laughs> okay, quick, quick jog through. Yeah, this is only this is only a short podcast. This, is, this isn't a, a mini series. Okay, quick jog through. So for a doctoral work, I worked in Trinidad, and I uh, didn't work with um, indigenous peoples, but rather with 
the descendants of slaves and also the descendants of indentured workers who during British colonial days were both kind of unwillingly brought to the island to work in the, the plantations and so forth and looked at their relations ever since then. So that was a, a coming together of, of difference at that point. And I, I looked at what construed these relations, how they conceived themselves, how how uh, notions of ethnicity and religion change over time, how they ebb and flow, how they become more important, how they become sources of contestation, but also might uh, be sources of conviviality as well. So that, that set that off. Um, so that was mainly, yeah, still working with, with ideas of ethnicity. This was in the 1980s when ethnicity was the big topic in anthropology globally. And then uh, working in, continuing to work in, in Britain with, uh, with Hindu and, and Muslim populations. This was at a time when, when the notion of multiculturalism was at its real height. And together with a number of other colleagues, I developed a real critique of notions of multiculturalism. And what I found more satisfying was the shift. To, and this, this is a kind of history of, of migration studies, potted history of migration studies as well the shift by the 90s to notions of uh, diaspora and transnationalism. And I found those much more satisfying uh, concepts to work with because they allowed for, I suppose, another through line in my work, I would call now something like multiplicity. The fact that people are able to be many things at once, have many different kinds of identities, modes of difference that come to the fore or go into the background depending on situations and, and types of encounters. And ideas of diaspora and transnationalism I found super interesting because they also allowed for a multiplicity of actually being here and there. The people who had come from one place or come from a succession of places and still had ties and senses of identity and social and cultural practices tied to other places. And I thought that was much more satisfying than rather staid notions of ethnicity and difference that were embedded in a lot of the notions of multiculturalism that were going around in the, the uh, 90s and early 2000s. But then also as part of this critique of multiculturalism, and, and by the time I was uh, founded and, and directed uh, the Center on Migration Policy and Society uh, Compass at, at Oxford, we were looking at you know, the latest um, migration statistics and so forth. And that's when I was starting to notice real major changes in patterns of migration into the 90s and early 2000s. Something was going on. You're starting to have a, a lot more people from very different places who had never been part of the main migration streams to Britain. Moreover, they were there were different gender patterns, different age patterns, and particularly different patterns of legal status coming in. And all of these things coming together sparked the idea of super diversity. And, you know, a lot of us scholars were, you know, were deeply interested in uh, the notion of intersectionality, about how the coming together of categories, the, the, the combination really affects things. And that was all at, at the, the heart of the kind of like the super diversity approach as well, is trying to understand how these new configurations of all of these different criteria. So not just country of origin and ethnicity, but gender, age, uh, particularly legal status, language, religion, all of these things 
we're in changing configurations and having knock-on effects to change the whole nature of how diversity was, was thought about in, in the UK. So that's why and how I came up with the super diversity thing. And then it's kind of taken on a life of its own since I coined it uh, around 2007. Yeah. What is the difference then between diverse and super diverse societies? You know, I've gotten this question a lot over the last 15 years and so, and it, I think it's based on a kind of misunderstanding. Super diversity, well, one, one colleague of mine, Ralph Grillo, um, you know, as I said, that the super diversity term has taken on a life of its own and, and people are making use of it in many different ways. But he's talked about how people use it to, to talk about super, what he calls super diversity light and super diversity heavy. Mm-hmm. Super diversity light is when people think super diversity just means more ethnicities. We've got more people from more different countries, full stop, that's, that's super diversity. Mm-hmm. Whereas super diversity heavy, more of my original meaning, it's not just more, it's, it's, it's a multidimensional thing. It's like what I was describing earlier, a whole configuration of characteristics or categories or classifications that come together. You know, especially countries of origin, gender, age, legal status. Those are some of the, the, the key ones. And so it's more of this multidimensional thing. So it's not like diversity reaches some sort of threshold. And then after that, it's super diversity. No, no, it's a matter of, of perspective. And when we talk about diversity, it's often meant just in terms of multiple ethnicities. Well, I've, I've done other work and writing on public concepts of diversity, and it often means lots of different things to it. It, it includes gender and uh, uh, sexuality. But more, it, my my problem, as it were, with public and, and policy approaches to diversity is they make the same mistake as a lot of earlier notions of multiculturalism. That is they treat people as belonging to, as it were, kind of unidimensional boxes. And it it makes this mistake of assuming that these kind of group boxes are tightly bounded and internally homogeneous. That if you belong in that box and somebody else belongs that box, well, obviously you are, you know, have the same outlooks, the same interests, the same experience and so forth. And that is obviously not the case. That does harm to the idea of what I was talking about of multiplicity. You can belong to different categories, but it doesn't mean everyone you know, belongs in a singular box. And so that was, that was the main critique of multiculturalism. And what I would say is that it could be a critique of diversity. Now, I also want to throw in there though, as I've, as I've written before, the, the uh, as it were, the ushering in of the, I, the concept of diversity, which is now all over the place. Every corporation, every university, every public sector employer has to have a diversity program. And the diversity training industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. You know, it's a big thing. And, you know, there are lots of problems with it. It, it equalizes differences. It makes sexuality and race and gender all kind of on the same level as if they're just you know, interchangeable or something. It has this problem of these unitary boxes or what we call essentialism as well. Nevertheless, I think diversity has done a lot of good 
as well. It has raised awareness. It has promoted recognition of groups and categories. It has played a big role in anti-discrimination measures and so forth. I, I wrote an article where I talk about a change to the public imaginary of how people think the world works out there. So, you know, it's just, it's just part of our job as academics to take these big public concepts and programs and look into them more to see what their implications are, to see what the negative sides are as well as the positive sides as well. And I think that's what we're dealing with, with notions like this. And now, um, you know, I'm sure people would be doing the same thing with super diversity because in many places on different scales, super diversity is working its way into public policy as well. And I'm sure there are problems there as well as good things happening too. So this brings me to my next question. Do we pay sufficient attention in scholarship, but also in public debates to diversity within minority groups, especially to minorities within minority groups? Um, Do we pay enough attention? Well, I would say in academic terms, I would say yes. I would think, you know, if, if you look through you know, the main journals and stuff like that, there's plenty of articles about subgroups, sub-subgroups within, you know, larger categories and so forth. So for academics, that hasn't been an issue. Um, in public debate and policy, uh, there's not enough attention paid to that. Again, you know, my colleagues in social policy have critiqued this a lot that you know, all people coming from place X are treated the same way without recognizing differences in, in between. So you know, academically, yes, public sphere, not enough attention, but we don't want to just keep creating smaller and smaller boxes within a big box. And this is again where I come back to this kind of notion I mentioned before of multiplicity or um, you know, multiple identity, multiple social categories. I mean, there's a, there's a whole branch of social psychology that I'm very interested in and have worked with a number of colleagues in called social identity complexity theory or um, multiple categorization theory. And that looks at how people juggle their multiple categorizations, multiple identifications, multiple senses of belonging. And you know, this is the stuff that I'm interested in. And I think we need to research a lot more is how people, A, are aware of their multiplicities individually, how they, what, what, what are the negotiations and struggles they have with, with managing those? And, and I'm not just talking about so-called ethnic minorities or migrants or something. Every one of us uh, has, has this aspect to us. And this is a big point in this field of social psychology. Everybody, we all have multiple identities that we and we, we bring to the fore or go into the background. What kind of situations bring those on? What kind of situations makes those categories choose us rather than us them? How people get categorized by others and are forced to respond because you've been labeled as Muslim, black, gay, whatever, um, white. Um, and, and having to respond to that. So that, that's where I think a lot of research needs to go is, is how people manage their social identity complexities. Yeah, I think for me, that would be the, 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 big, the big sort of 
challenge to do and not simply point out more and more smaller groups within groups as if they're just another smaller box or something. We're all living in multiple boxes all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also this relates to, you know, a famous adage, I don't know, you know, attributed to Stuart Hall or whoever, but it's, it's you know, an, a phrase used by a lot of people is, you know, amongst all of these multiple categories and identities that we all have, what difference makes a difference in what situation? And that's what I mean about more research into how people manage these sorts of things. And when, when people are present themselves as X or are perceived as Y, what difference does that make to the social interaction or encounter or, um, or political mobilization or whatever we're, we're talking about? The last question would be about your current projects or planned projects. Is there something you're working on right now that you would like to speak about? Oh, well, thanks, thanks for this opportunity to, uh, to plug a book. Plug, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is your opportunity. Coming, but uh, yeah, I'm just finishing. Well, it's a, it's a long overdue book. I, I was asked to write a book on super diversity and what comes after. So I'm just finishing that, and that will actually be available uh, open access uh, by the end of this year with, with Routledge. So everybody listening can get it free, look for it. It's called um, Super Diversity and then subtitle Migration and Social Complexity. So in that book, you know, I, I, I go through the whole uh, super diversity thing again, why it came about, what it means and so forth, how it was picked up by uh, other scholars and, and taken off in different directions more than a half a dozen books. I think something like 10 books on super diversity have already been published by other people, not by me. So I go into how it's been interpreted, how it's been critiqued. There's been important critiques of, of super diversity. So I go into those a little bit. But then I look at um, ongoing patterns of diversification, both within migration, the global migration patterns and within societies themselves. Even if you took migration out of the picture, many societies around the world are diversifying anyways, just within their own populations. I've said before that I think one of the main reasons why the super diversity concept took off and why so many people picked it up and have used it in different ways is because people have been in their own work, and this, this goes across a range of social science disciplines as well. People have been seeing societies all over, um, complexifying in one way or another, or with one meaning of complexity or another. And super diversity was one of the new terms that they could latch onto to try to talk about the kind of complexity they wanted to look at, whether it's in social policy, neighborhood stuff, political policy, linguistic change, changes to senses of identity or, or whatever it was. And so that's why people use the term often in, in ways a bit different from what I first meant by it, but it's because they were looking for a language to talk about complexity. And so that's why I end up this book talking about how we might conceive of and talk about social complexity itself. And of course, how super diversity fits into that. So that's what I've been working on. And as I said, I'm just about to to dot the I's and cross the T's and uh, send it off to the publisher in a couple of weeks. 
yeah, it should be out later this year. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to flag that up to people. Yeah. Yes. So once it is out, we will paste the link in the okay. description of the episode so yeah. people know where to find the book. Yeah. And yes, well, thank you so much for speaking to us today and agreeing to be part of the Migration Podcast. Yeah, total pleasure. Um, yeah, thanks for this and for the opportunity to, to think of what, what connects my work. I haven't uh, had much of a chance to do that, yeah. Stephen Vertebeck is the founding director at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Religious and Ethnic Diversity and honorary professor of sociology and ethnology at the University of Göttingen in Germany.